Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Professor Brian O'Rourke of Robert Morris University in Pittsburgh. We talk about the economics of the Hunger Games, particularly in relation to institutions and their role in the economy, as well as the economics of superheroes, and how superheroes can be used to help explain many concepts in economics. And Brian gives us some amazing examples, including the concept of marginal analysis and thinking of the margin when using the example of Deadpool, who weighs up the pros and cons of being a superhero. Professor O'Rourke also shares with us some amazing writing tips, including a priceless writing tip shared by Professor James Buchanan at George Mason when Brian was doing his PhD there. You can check out all the links, resources and books on a list of superheroes mentioned by Brian over at economicrockstar.com forward slash Brian O'Rourke. That's O-R-O-A-R-K. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. But as teachers, as we make those students comfortable by showing them that economics is a part of their life on a regular basis through these different kinds of pop culture media, I I think that helps them to really start to appreciate where economics is in their lives and how important it can be to help them to understand the choices that they make, uh, to help them understand that they have to make choices, period. You can just go through and show how people think at the margin or they they make these decisions based on the pros and cons. And, And here's Deadpool doing it while he's in the middle of this fight about, well, you know, if I you know, enjoying the superheroes makes me look like a geek because, you know, they got to be all good and all the time. And but, you know, you get all the girls if you're the superhero. And so it's really a, a neat 30 second clip out of that movie of just thinking about the, the benefits and the cost of making this particular decision. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Brian O'Rourke join me today. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Frank. It's great to be with you. Brian O'Rourke is University Professor of Economics at Robert Morris University in Pittsburgh. He is the co-director of the Robert Morris Center for Economics Education and has a PhD from George Mason University. In 2014, Brian was given the Undergraduate Teaching Innovation Award by the Middle Atlantic Association of Colleges of Business Administration. He teaches the Survey of Economics course and Principles of Micro and Macroeconomics. Brian is the co-author of the ultimate guide to teaching essentials of economics, where hundreds of teaching tips is compiled into one essential, thoughtfully designed teaching resource, making it easy for new instructors to incorporate best teaching practices into their courses and for veteran teachers to find inspiration to enliven their lectures. Professor O'Rourke has integrated economic content in songs, with many topics being covered in the music videos available at criticalcommons.org. To me, Brian has become synonymous with superheroes and... I could be forgiven for calling him Super Econ Man. (laughs) Brian, I I don't want to go into superheroes just yet because I think that's going to be the best part, or for me anyway, I want to kind of keep keep that for a little bit later. Uh, And you can explain why I'm kind of calling you Super Econ Man then. But um, what I'd love to talk about firstly, if you're okay with this, is... Your book, the resource book, The Ultimate Guide to Teaching Essentials of Economics that you've co-authored. 
I'd love to know reason why you've done something like this. And did you find that there was something missing in the market and that it was needed? Because I definitely think it's needed. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, the folks who collaborated on this sort of had the same approach to teaching and that, you know, we've got some, we think we have some really good ideas and some things that'll help folks out, especially the, the younger generation who are just getting into classes, uh, classrooms for the first time. And we want to, um, we wanted to just share what we knew and, and we've got these, like I said, these great resources and these great techniques and these great tips to, to really kind of break the ice with students and uh, to get them engaged in classrooms. And, and we didn't want to keep everything to ourselves. It's, it's a, it's a really neat collaborative community teaching uh, the, the economics uh, teaching community. And um, you know, if we can share these ideas with people and help them to become more comfortable in front of the classroom and, and talk more fluidly with their students and more uh, confidently with their students about economics. We just thought this was a great thing to do, a great resource to provide. And, you know, we've got these things we just want to share with the world. And the folks who are who worked on the ultimate guide and for the essentials and for micro and, and there's one for micro, there's one for macro. We're just are such great teachers that, you know, it just seemed like a natural thing to just pull everybody together and, and get them to sort of give up their best material for us and and share that with the teaching community. And is this something that you've worked on in the past in terms of some academic papers, or was this something that you felt was needed in the economics classroom? And for example, you, you use popular culture, like movies and uh, songs that is used to help teach economics or get the message through in terms of understanding concepts. Yeah, there's actually, there's a, a great stream of papers coming out from seems like younger and younger economists. I hate to say that. It makes me sound old, but, you know, stuff about music and different song options and how to use those songs in a classroom. So when I started using music in the classroom, I think I'm pretty sure it was with cassette tapes. So that kind of goes back a little ways and, you know, it dates me maybe a little bit, but I just put the tape in and played the song and then try to talk a little bit about the song, try to get the students to, to, to speak about it, to see what kind of concepts they could draw from the music. Now there's there are videos. You mentioned the Critical Commons site. There's music for econ. That's what I work on. And um, I, I just recently saw a, a country music and economics. Um, Matt Rousseau, who you've had on before, does Broadway economics and Kim Holder does a rockonomics. There's just there's so many different ways to approach this. And, and folks are realizing, hey, you know, if I can write up a paper on this, it's, it's really good for for my career. And it also, you know, uh, develops these ideas more um, in more depth for for folks around the country. But it's, you know, it's, there's the music, there's the movies, there's the TV shows, there's different websites that folks have um, that just provide these huge caches of, of resources for teachers. And I mean, I know when I started teaching, I, I just had no idea what was out there. And I don't think there was much out there, but now it's almost, it's almost an embarrassment of riches, how many resources are available. And you can go and find, you know, there are papers on a lot of these things, there's a, I've got a paper out on the best movies for teaching economics and, um, we've got the best songs for economics that we're shopping around and, and just a lot of different kinds of approaches and different depths and different, you know, different people working on these things. And a lot of that does show up in the, uh, in the ultimate teaching guide. And I see that paper, the 10 greatest films for teaching economics. And I'm just so interested in how you actually went out and got your sample. You had 105 educators and, they gave you their top five, I think it was, and you narrowed that down to the top 10 that you could use to teach econ. Yeah. So we, um, it was sort of going to conferences and, and 
not I don't want to say we you know accosted anybody or stalked anybody, but we sort of you know followed people around with these you know little half sheets of paper and and in some cases sat down with folks and said, hey, here's what we're doing and you know can you give us some ideas? So we went to a various you know various conferences. I think we were at C we were definitely at the C Tree conference, which is a great econ ed conference sponsored by the AEA. I think we were at we went to the Neta conference and and got some solicited some folks there and Kim Holder who's one of the co-authors on that paper who's really great with the social media was sending out requests to people and then we have people who we contacted through the Journal of Economics teaching so it was it was a lot of fun collecting that information at least for us i think in some cases some of the folks were a little taken aback by how you know, energetic and enthusiastic we were at these uh, econ ed conferences. But we, we tried to go to find the teachers who who teach, or at least the folks who are really interested in teaching economics and, and get their ideas and try to, uh, you know, pump them for, for information. And this, the list was really, really long. I was surprised with how many, you know, the, the variety of, of answers that we got, the variety of movies. And, and um, you know, I, I learned about films that I had never heard of before. There's uh, there was a film on somebody could not recommend highly enough on basically for teaching labor about uh, coal miner strikes in West Virginia. And I, I never heard of it. I rushed home. I checked on Netflix. Netflix doesn't have it. So it's a, it's a film that's out there. I think James Earl Jones was in it when it, in his younger acting career. But you know, it, it sounds great. I just have to try to track it down. And was that in the top 10 or was it just somebody mentioned it for you because the frequency of people suggesting these movies I say I say that was only mentioned once, and I couldn't imagine it. Yeah, being in the top ten as a result, is it right? It was it was a one time deal, and so you know, just having the sort of the raw responses was great because that allowed you know that allowed us to kind of go through and say, well, I never heard of this one before, or man, I I really I need to watch that movie again because I I don't remember the econ content in that movie, but yeah, it, that one unfortunately for uh, probably for. <laughs> For sales of that movie, it didn't make the list, but um, yeah, most of the the ones in the top ten were were quite familiar names, and um, you know, it's a wonderful life. You know, we're here around Christmas, and the movie "It's a Wonderful Life" comes up across sort of the demographic spectrum. So you have young folks mention it, and old, uh, older teachers mentioning it as well. And and you know, in that list, there is it does skew, and I think this is natural for any kind of a top ten list. It does skew to some more recent films. You know, some of the the, the movies that I liked didn't make the list simply because they're they're just older and you're going to get that with any kind of a top 10 list sort of the the front of mind rec, name recognition gets to the top of the lists in those cases yeah it just reminds me of um, a recent interview i had with deirdre mccloskey and i asked her how do we get people more interested in economics and she said they need to introduce literature or movies and relate to economic concepts that way and she mentioned uh, steinbeck's the grapes of rot looking at that part of america and associating to looking at a, a lot of economics there. Yeah. And also I had a, an interview with Andrew Heaton. It was actually way back in episode six and he has or used to have a podcast and it was on available on YouTube as well with Steve Horvitz called Econ Pop. And they looked at economics in movies like Ghostbusters and it's absolutely fantastic. And you should check that out. It's really, really good. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting that you mentioned Deidre's position on, uh, on Grapes of Wrath because I would, Obviously, I think that's a great book and I think that's a great resource. But my students just for them, that's that's like ancient literature now. And I've got a paper out on using the Hunger Games to teach economics. And there's a actually um, I'm involved with a book series right now. And we're meeting to do a 
book on using dystopian literature to teach economics. So there'll be a chapter on Hunger Games and a chapter on the Divergent series. And uh, I think the oldest thing that's going to be in that book is something on Clockwork Orange, which I can pretty safely say that none of my students have seen Clockwork Orange. But I've seen a paper come through on using Mad Max to teach economics. And there's just right now there's so many great literature sources and great movie sources and music sources that are so readily available that teachers, that folks who are trying to make connections with students can take advantage of those resources in ways that, you know, we just never, you know, just never had those opportunities before. I'd actually love to talk about the economics of the Hunger Games, if you don't mind, because you do have a paper on that. And it kind of follows on for another recent interview I had on the economics of The Wire. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, I never watched or read The Hunger Games. But I have an idea what it's about. And you have a couple of economic themes within that, like comparative advantage and the role of institutions, inequality. You know, if you wanted to touch on anything, any one of those and kind of explain how it might relate to the Hunger Games. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think in that book, there's a, there's oftentimes you'll find things on opportunity costs and the, and the choices that people make. And, and those are, those are sort of easy kind of low hanging fruit to, to pull those out of the book. Um, what I really liked about the Hunger Games and, and sort of my favorite point about the Hunger Games, and, and that was sort of that was a paper that sort of a collaborative effort that, that uh, started with a guy, uh, Jeff Cleveland, who was presenting at our Robert Morris University Economics Teaching Conference. And he and Kim Holder and myself got together and, and sort of developed that and sort of fleshed it out. But my favorite part about the Hunger Games, as far as the economics of it, is the is the role of institutions in that dystopian future where you've got this central sort of autocratic government who controls everything and basically tells everybody what they're going to produce. And, and there's no labor mobility, but the institutions are set up such that the folks who are closest to the capital are the ones who benefit most from the resources. And as the story unfolds and as people start to rebel against that autocratic government, you start to see that the idea of freedom and the idea of trying to just basic communi- just have basic communication between parts of the country and the importance of trying to organize things is just it's made so difficult by the way the the government had set up those institutions in the first place. So it made it almost impossible for anyone to have any kind of economic growth. So if you're if you're in the furthest regions out from the from the capital, you're basically you're the coal miners and you've got no there's no upward mobility whatsoever. The government puts in place these uh, very strict controls on communication, on what you can and cannot do and how you can interact with other people. So there's these these black markets that pop up. So despite all these restrictions on people, you still see this inclination to, to exchange with each other and to, to try to get the things that you need despite your limited resources and despite the rules and the deck that's stacked against you. It's, it's really an interesting and well-developed, uh, that first book in particular, and from sort of a, a critical commentary perspective, I think that those dystopian series seem to, they're great in the first manifestation. The first book in a series is, 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 tends to be spectacular. And then I don't know if an editor gets a hold of somebody and says, Hey, this is a really great book. Let's stretch it out as far as we can. And then the author kind of loses steam. But you see in that, in that first Hunger Games book, and you see this in the Divergent series as well, just how the organizations of society have, have broken down and then been reformed in just in, in ways that that make it so that the 
the people in those stories have no chance of success unless they overthrow the existing governmental structure. I can almost hear a lot of George Mason influences in what you're saying there or in terms of how you can relate a lot of this stuff to economics or is that just a coincidence? Because again, I don't know if you know Peter Leeson. Yeah. He's done the economics mm -hmm. of pirates and coming from George Mason. Is, is that the type of influence that you have or is this just personal interest? And given the circles that you've, like the people that you've met up with, like Kim Holder and James Tierney and Matt Russo and those that have kind of influenced your type of thinking and where you're going with all of this. I think it's amazing. Well, yeah, Matt and I have been sort of tossing around an idea about looking at these these literature series, this dystopian literature and how there's this underlying theme there about just sort of trying to break away from autocratic governments. In most of these series, you see some sort, and even going way, way back in dystopian literature, there's this, some some event has happened to change the course of human history. Usually it has something to do with nuclear war. And the government that arises from that tends to be very, very dictatorial. And that, that seems to just be a theme in the literature. You know, I think maybe there is a, maybe there's an, I have an affinity for those kinds of stories. And, and maybe it's it's because of that affinity toward those stories and that kind of breaking the, those shackles that are holding people back. Maybe that's why I went to Mason in the first place. But yeah, I think, I think uh, folks from Mason really kind of look at because of the public choice part of our education there. And we, we kind of look maybe a little bit more askance at, at government and the role of government and, and those stories could kind of feed that inspiration or feed that flame that we have the kind of, you know, dis understanding that government's necessary, but you know, still ha having a healthy distrust of government, I think, fits the Mason persona. And then it, it, it plays itself out in these stories. And it's amazing to be able to tune into these types of books and movies when they're released, especially the movies for, say, students who want a quick introduction or a quick overview of what goes on in these types of stories and how they could be related to, related to economics. And in, in the paper that you've written on the economics of the Hunger Games, you said the students have responded favorably. I'd love to know how you might test that in terms of being able to get student feedback. Well, I, I think sort of the, the easiest thing to do in that way is to just, you know, ask your stu ask students, you know, have they read the Hunger Games? Do they understand the stories? And do they understand the economics in the stories? And they, they'll at that point, they'll start to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, economics in the Hunger Games, now you're ruining the story for me. But it's you know, more of a survey kind of thing. Do, is your understanding of economics increased or do you have a better appreciation for how often economics shows up in your daily life when you start to have this literature that you're very familiar with or this movie that you're very familiar with? When it's introduced in that context, does the, the mystique of economics kind of fade a little bit? And I think as, as, as a teacher – uh, what I've found over the years is that the biggest problem for students, I don't think is the graphs and I don't think it's the math. I think it's just their unfamiliarity with the subject matter in the states. There are some states that require economics for high school students to graduate. And the rigor of those courses is it varies widely. Most of the time, it's not a, a regular what, what we would consider at, at a university, a, a regular economics class. It's, it's, you know, there's some economic component to a history lesson or some economic component to a political science lesson. And that fulfills the requirement. So when students come to my classes, 
very few of them have had any kind of formal economic class. And it's sort of like dropping a, a college freshman into a into a foreign language class that they've never, you know, into Mandarin Chinese or something. They don't have any idea what's going on because they have no familiarity, at least with their math classes. They've had math before their science classes. They've taken a science class. But with econ, it's just this it's this foreign language. And most of their experiences and most of the uh, the feedback that they've gotten from other people is how hard economics is, how it doesn't make any sense. And you know, just try to get your C and get through the class. But as teachers, as we make those students comfortable by showing them that economics is a part of their life on a regular basis through these different kinds of pop culture media, I, I think that helps them to really start to appreciate where economics is in their lives and how important it can be to help them to understand the choices that they make, uh, to help them understand that they have to make choices, period. Sometimes students don't even consider that. I mean, they, they understand they have to make a choice, but they don't understand the ramifications. A lot of times a student will come in and they'll be you know, on fire. They'll be advocating for a higher minimum wage or they'll be talking about you know, free college education. And, you know, we try to get them to slow down a little bit, step back and start to think about the consequences of those choices. And we can see consequences for characters in these books and characters in these movies. They have to make choices. And that's sort of what makes those those storylines work. It's like, all right, how do I, I have to make this choice about, uh, in the case of the hunger games. So Katniss makes the choice to take her sister's place in the hunger games. What does that, what does that mean for her? What are the consequences that they face? And like, Oh, of course, you know, that makes the story interesting. That makes it, you know, there's some tension in the story and then turn around and say, well, you've got to make choices in your life about you know, this, you know, what, what are you going to major in? What are the potential benefits to majoring in, say, economics versus majoring in art history or something like that? So, so we show those students that, yeah, you're, you know, you're not making the decision to be fighting in the Hunger Games, but you do have to make decisions that have long-term consequences. And to start to get them to think at the margin, to start to get them to think about the costs and benefits of the decisions that they make, to throw that stuff at a student on the first or second day of class without kind of softening the blow a little bit, I think, makes students a little bit queasy about economics, just simply because they don't understand what they don't understand. I mean, they really don't know what they don't know, but they also don't know that they really they've been making economic choices a lot of their lives. And, and now we're going to start to formalize those decision making processes and and then we'll move it on to businesses. And so, okay, if you want to have a $15 minimum wage, that's great for you as someone who's working, but who pays that minimum wage? It's not just something that comes out of thin air. We need to talk about sort of the source of where those funds are coming from and what are the costs for the business. And to me, it's amazing to see the light bulb go off when students start to make those connections of, well, I've got costs and benefits. I've got to make decisions when I make decisions. Oh, yeah. And businesses do, too. You know, businesses make decisions and they're not always popular decisions, but the students just don't understand those costs and benefits all that much. And so that's, you know, that's part of showing how every choice that's made, whether it's you know in a book, whether it's in a movie, whether it's, you know, what major you're going to, to adopt or whether you're going to pay your workers more. Those, you've got to think about those kinds of things. And then we can extend that out later in the class to you know, the decisions that governments make and the uh, whether it's public finance or you know, monetary policy or whatever the case may be, you know, they've got to think about the choices all the way along the lines. And, and it's great to have that literature resource to fall back on or that movie to fall back on and say, hey, yeah, guys, you know, don't forget, 
the monetary policymakers are going to, they want to increase the money supply. But what, what are the consequences? And they think about it for a second. And then you refer back to, hey, remember all these consequences that these characters in this story made? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So now the monetary policymakers have to think about those kinds of things as well. And these teams that you describe, like I, I looked at your paper on the economics of the Hunger Games, and it is so comprehensive. You talk about the production possibility frontiers. You have the Nash equilibrium in there, the Lorenz curve highlighting inequality, GDP, standards of living. So it really cuts through a lot of the micro and the macro aspects of the, the series. And I suppose the themes are quite common when you look at other books. For example, you could almost relate or identify those headings and search for the same type of themes in the likes of Game of Thrones. You could look at a Star Wars as well. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, that's another good thing about using literature and movies is the character names may change, but oftentimes the themes of the book, the themes of the story, the, you know, what's the, the choices, like a Luke Skywalker makes a choice. Oh, I've, I've got to decide whether to go with Ben Kenobi or not. I could stay on Tatooine. You know, it, it's a, it's a basic choice there. And then you can go on and see what that choice means and, and the consequences that he faces. And, and then I, there's, um, the sort of the episodes one, two, and three, there's issues there about trade wars and, and, and the, yeah, these things kind of, um, the, the themes of good and evil, the themes of choices and the tensions that are created by choices show up in those kinds of things all the time. The, one of the things about the Hunger Games is the macro is much easier to pull out of than in some other books, but there are still macro themes that do show up in movies and, and other stories. And, and it is fun. Honestly, it's, it's fun. Like when I read, this is one of the the kinds of things that I like to read are these kind of fantasy stories. I've been reading a lot of dystopian literature lately, and and to me they're really fun. And I think you know if I find them as entertaining, I'm sure my students are going to find them as entertaining. And my own children have recommended books to me. Um, there's a series called Oh, I can never remember if it's the Uglies or the Pretties or whatever. It's it's one of those series, and and it's sort of a, a lighter dystopian kind of story, but it still has a lot of the same themes in it. And there's sort of this autocratic governments making people choose things that they may not otherwise want to choose, and 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 how do those choices have consequences? And then what do we do to get? How do we do that? What do we do to break away from the institutions that have been set up that prevent us from growing economically? They're really, really interesting. Are you a Trekkie? Oh, yeah. Are you a Trekkie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure you find a lot of themes in there, too, because I had a, another episode. I don't know if you ever listened to it. Episode 60 with Manu Saadia on Trekonomics. I think you'd like it. Yeah, somebody recommended that book to me, and I'm, I was re- I'm really interested in looking at that book, but I'm a little disappointed because I was hoping we could find someone to write on Star Trek for this book series but somebody's already done it so look if it's done and it works you might as well um you could you could still do a a part on it oh yeah yeah who knows Yeah, i like the original series uh that's you know that's sort of my when when i was growing up i had a a really good friend who was her whole family was crazy about star trek but it was the it was before the the spinoff series came out so it was you know, we'd get home and watch the reruns of the original Star Trek and get back to school the next day and you know talk about everything that had gone on in the in the previous night's episode. And uh, yeah, I, I have so much, so many fond memories of watching the old Star Treks after school. And that'll bring me perfectly on, I think, to the superheroes. <laughs> Super Econ Man. Is this your superhero name or is this about something else to play on the word rational man or something? Well, I, it, it sort of was a, was an easy kind of, headline name. So I was thinking about 
what are other areas that students are paying a lot of attention to? And, and I kind of, I was given this one sort of on a silver platter. It just took me a little while to realize it. I had a couple of students in a class last year who were, they'd come in and they'd be talking about two shows in particular that were running in the, in the States here, one on the flash and one on the green arrow. And they'd be going back and forth about how you know, the storyline was turning. And I'm, I'm just kind of standing up. This was before class. And I just sort of standing up, wait for class to start listening to them talking and thinking, you know, these, these shows actually seem fairly interesting. Maybe I ought to start watching them. And then I kind of let it, you know, let it go and then come back the couple of days later. And they'd be still, they'd be talking about a prospective spinoff show from these superhero TV shows. And, and I'm thinking, man, they're really into these shows. And, you know, all these new, all these superhero movies are coming out and, and it's sort of, you know, after a couple of weeks, it just hit me, you know, this is, this is something that, that students seem to be paying a lot of attention to. So we started at my house, we started watching the flash and my, my children loved it and their friends were already watching it. So I thought, all right, I need to pay a little bit more attention to what's going on in these stories and see if I can get any economics out of this. And it did not take long at all to start to see these, these economic themes in, in the stories. Uh, I'm sure the writers are not thinking about those, but it helps to drive the story along where there are limited resources. You know, so you have maybe a Batman character who he's really rich. And so it seems like he can buy whatever he wants, but he doesn't really have any superpowers. And you contrast him with Superman who has all these superpowers, which reduces his conflict with scarcity because he can do so many things that normal people can't do. And I'm like, oh, this is this is starting to really fall into place where I can I can start to build almost build a curriculum around uh, from the very beginning. All right. When we talk about economics and we talk about trying to deal with scarcity, how do these superheroes deal with scarcity? And some of them deal with it really well and others don't deal with it at all. And why do some superheroes deal with scarcity better than others? And it just starts to build on each other. And, and so the, the idea of super econ man, I thought, you know, that's kind of cheesy. And, and I'm not thrilled with that particular way of describing, you know, studying superheroes. So I did a presentation on this. And part of the presentation was trying to come up with some better super, like if an, if an economist was a superhero, what would their name be? I mean, super econ man is like, mm, you know, maybe that's good for the 1940s. But, you know, there, there were some other names that I that I came up with. The marketeer I thought was pretty good. The margin raider, the incentivizer. I thought it's kind of like the punisher. You know, he's the incentivizer. He's going to, you know, there's some, you know, maybe some violence involved with the incentivizer. And my favorite is and maybe this is maybe the villain's name in the economic superhero world is free rider. So you've got this guy who's going around and, you know, just. You know, free riding off everybody's, or maybe this is, maybe free rider is the, is the sidekick of the super econ man, just because he's kind of basking in the glow of the prime superhero there in the economics world. I passed by that presentation. You had the door opened in Florida and I, I didn't go in and I had to walk backwards again because I saw on the screen Deadpool. Oh yeah. And I thought, hang on there now. What's this about? I want to go in, but I just couldn't interrupt toward, I think it was toward the end. So I missed out on it, but I have your slides and I just wanted to know, and I wanted to ask you, why was Deadpool on the screen that time? And I can see all your other slides, Superman. And if you don't mind, I could uh, create a link on my own website to link to these slides for anybody who was interested in them. That'd be terrific. Yeah. So Deadpool's, you know, Deadpool's one of these superheroes where if there wasn't a movie about Deadpool, very few people would know anything about him. And there's a lot of superheroes like that. 
But what's kind of fun as you explore these different superheroes and the powers that they have and, and how they get their powers, that, that's one of the neat angles on, and looking at the economics of superheroes and sort of just looking at their backstories. Where do they come from? And uh, the character Wade Wilson is, is approached. He's got he's just been told he's got terminal cancer. So there, he's told that there's a way that he can be cured of this cancer. And what am I going to do? So he has to go through this thought process of, you know, is it worth it? They've told me, you know, I've got to go away to this center. And, and he decides, you know what, it's whatever the pain involved is, whatever the physical pain is, let's, let's go through with this. So he's weighing his costs and benefits. And, and so that's part of it. But the best scene in the movie to me is this marginal analysis that he does right in the middle of a fight scene. So he's been sort of interacting with some of the X-Men and they're trying to get him to join the X-Men. And so he's in the middle of this fight scene and he starts to think about this conversation that he had with one of the X-Men. And, and he starts to enumerate the pros and cons of being a superhero. It's just, it's unbelievable. You know, so I've got to, I, I go into class and I'm, I'm trying to teach about marginal thinking. And, you know, these, these little things that, you know, should I do a little bit more of something? Should I do a little less of something? And so we're thinking at the margin. And oftentimes when you're thinking at the margin, you want to kind of take a look at the pros and cons. And most of the students have done that, at least in their minds. They may not have sat down and written them out. But I can show this. i got to be careful how much of it I show because in, in the movie, the language is a little harsh. But you can just go through and show how people think at the margin or they, they make these decisions based on the pros and cons. And, and here's Deadpool doing it while he's in the middle of this fight about, well, you know, if I, you know, joining the superheroes makes me look like a geek because, you know, they got to be all good and all the time. And, but, you know, you get all the girls if you're the superhero. And so it's really a, a neat 30 second clip out of that movie of just thinking about the, the benefits and the cost of making this particular decision. Brian, I'd love to know when you were talking about looking at the Flash and other programs and sitting down to extract some economic teams from them. Do you sit there with a pen and paper and jot down whatever it might be? Do you have a list that you now have created and try to identify some of these types of themes or concepts within the, uh, the movies or programs? Or how do you go about doing it? Yeah, usually what I do is I have something I'm going to teach on that day or that week. And I try to relate it to some sort of scene in a superhero, either a TV show or a movie. Um, sometimes, though, when I'm watching the shows, those themes just kind of pop up. And yeah, then I'm sitting there uh, looking for a pen and a paper to, to write that down so I don't forget it. Um, I've been really fortunate to have kept in touch with some folks that I went to high school with who are huge comic book and superhero fanatics. And so that's, I can, you know, if I have an idea, uh, and a topic that relates to it, I can go to them and say, hey, guys, this is what I'm looking for. Do you, can you think of anything? And that's been really, really valuable for me uh, just to have the, the people who are so familiar with the other characters. Because, you know, the TV shows and the movies, you have Batman and Superman and you have Wonder Woman a little bit and Supergirl now has her own show and Flash and Green Arrow. And so you've got these, these sort of a little bit more familiar names, but there's also some really sort of off the wall characters, Nate Gray, Dr. Manhattan, Scarlet Witch or Black Bolt. These some of these like super, super powered superheroes that people don't know that much about. And these friends of mine know about them and can say, oh, yeah, there was this this episode in this sort of series on on this particular character. And I, I think this is what you're looking for. So just having those resources, those human resources that I can go to has been really, really helpful. So when you're going to be writing, you are writing a book on all of this, aren't you? All the types of movies and so on that is going to be, that have the economic themes in it. 
Um, Is that what you're working on? Well, right now we're doing sort of a series of books. So actually Matt Rousey is doing one on Broadway. Uh, I'm involved in the dystopian. I think the superhero book is, is sort of a foregone conclusion that it's, it's going to, we're going to have to start working on that at some point. And then we'll do one on probably on music and, and different music types and how country music tends to have just a, a, a lot more. Well, country music and uh, R&B and rap have a lot of economic content and it's a lot more than. I can imagine the rap already. Oh yeah. Much more so than, than the pop. You know, my kids like the, the pop or the top 40 kind of, um, you know, pop music stuff. And there every once in a while you'll, you'll find something in a song like that. But some of those other genres are much more, they just have much more depth to the, to the lyrics. And so I think we'll, we'll probably be taking a look at a book on music and, and I may end up being a couple of volumes in that series. So yeah, there's, there's just a lot of different ways to go with this. And, you know, I've got a paper on the superheroes that's under review now, and I'm working on a second one using game theory and, just sort of circumstances that superheroes run into. Some some of them are very common. Sort of, you know, the villain gives you you've got to choose between saving this person and that person. And you know, if you're teaching game theory in a in a non game theory class, having some familiarity with what's going on in a circumstance can help make those concepts a lot clearer. And I think superheroes are a really good tool for that. So we've got those superhero papers coming out. And, and again, I mentioned there's a Mad Max paper and, you know, other specific things that people are working on who, you know, to, to illustrate these concepts. Yeah, that's what I was just actually going to say about the illustrations, you know, actual illustrations. I'm sure with these books, they require or you must have images in order to make it interesting. And how do you go about doing that in terms of putting up Images of Batman and Superman, and kind of going off the point a little, I think. Well, no, I th- that that's certainly a thing to th- can be concerned about going forward. I have a, a friend who uh, Josh Hall who did a book on The Simpsons, and he said that was we. I had talked about talked with a a, a graduate student um, when I was in graduate school. I, I me and another graduate student were talking about doing something about The Simpsons, and we got about ten minutes into the conversation, and he said, "You know, this isn't going to work." Because there's no way we're going to get the permissions to do any of this stuff. And based on Josh's recount of doing the Simpsonomics book, boy, it sounded like a pain in the neck. I think he said they had they had somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred references that they had to boil down to like eight or nine. You know, as far as the specifics and the character names and everything. And I just thought, boy, that that takes away so much of what you're trying to do. So that yeah, the images that could potentially be a problem. Now, using the names isn't nearly as big of a deal. Because they're so pervasive throughout the culture, you know, to say Superman is, you know, I'm not violating copyright, which is a good thing. So to describe them in that sense, but I've been in touch with the publisher of this little series we're working on, and they have assured me that they can get the permissions, and I will let them deal with that because I don't have the time or the patience to deal with with those kinds of things. It could end up becoming disheartening. You'd probably end up not finishing the work because you're concentrating on other things. But I was just going to say, I'd love to see, and I'm sure they will eventually, Comic-Con get in touch with you because Ooh. this is something that they would actually love to have. I think they actually had Manu Sadia. I don't know for, for Trekonomics at one, or that could have been something else. But I think it would be absolutely amazing. And I think people would love it to see how economic concepts could be used in all DC and Marvel. Oh, wow. That's a, 
I had not thought about that, but you're going to, if something like that happens, I've got like these friends of mine I was talking about are going to get extremely jealous very quickly. <laughs> you need to get in touch with these people. Well, because they, they mightn't find you, you know, they, you put it out there and they'd love to have someone like yourself to put this out there because it is quite unique and quite different. And I'm sure a lot of people who pass through those doors have been exposed to economics. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great idea. I'm, I, I'm going to, uh, well, everyone knows now that it was your idea, but I'm going to pursue it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and what would you dress up as if you had to turn up a Comic-Con? Ooh, well, I, I think I'd have to come up with an economics man or, or one of these other characters. I'm going to have to come up with a, a costume of some sort. I, I sort of scares me. One of my daughters is, is into art and design, and, and so maybe she could come up with some kind of costume, but I will put my foot down at capes and say no capes. No capes? What about an underpants on the front, no? <laughs> <laughs> hmm, I, I suppose if there's something underneath them, then I'll be all right. Yes. <laughs> Um, what I'd love to ask, Brian, um, just moving away from the economics of superheroes and the Hunger Games, what made you interested in economics in the first place? Well, that's sort of my origin story, I guess, in economics is sort of an odd one. I was uh, when I went into undergrad, I, w I had really no idea what I wanted to do. And so um, the school I wanted to go to, I sort of I was sort of lazy about college searches and I found a school that I wanted to get into. And it was getting late in my senior year in high school. And so I was advised to, to say that I wanted to go in as an engineering major because the school was looking for people to apply as engineering majors. So that's what I did. So the first day on campus, I changed my major because uh, I didn't really want to be an engineer. So I started into pre-law and not too long into my freshman year, I thought, ah, pre-law, I don't think I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to law school. There's enough lawyers in the world. So I sort of settled on secondary ed social studies. So I was going to thought, oh, I really like history. I can teach history uh, in high school. So for a couple of years, I was on that track. I'd taken a couple of econ classes. The teachers weren't particularly good. And so I said, ah, you know, econ, I'm done with that. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And then in my junior year, I, in between semesters, we were required to do a, a an in-class visit. So I had to call up a high school, arrange to go into the school and, and just kind of shadow a teacher for a day. And about halfway through that first day, I thought, there is no way in the world I'm going to be a high school teacher. This place is, this is a zoo. I can't handle this at all. So I sort of had a, a crisis you know, on my hands here. I didn't want to be a history teacher anymore. Um, I knew there was absolutely no money in being a history major. And if you didn't want to teach, what do you do with a history major anyway? So at that time, I had a friend who was taking a class. It had just started in the spring semester of my junior year. It was a class. It was being team taught by Dirk Mateer, who was uh, at Grove City College at the time, and Walter Williams, who um, I had never heard of before. But my friend said, oh, he's great. You'll love him. It's a terrific class. So Walter Williams was coming up from George Mason. Every other week, he would teach you know, one day for two and a half hours or so. And there were seats available in the class. It was in a big auditorium. And so I switched over to that class and thought, this this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I, I, I really wish we would have had this kind of engagement and, and fire on the part of the teachers when I was a freshman because this is really cool stuff. So at that point, I finished up the semester I had in my senior year to go. And I thought, you know, I think I think I want to be an econ major. Now, at that point, I had had three econ classes, so I needed seven more. And Grove City required us to have 
Uh, if you were an econ major, you needed to take this series of business courses as well. So I ended up taking seven econ classes my senior year plus whatever the business classes. I think uh, there was an accounting and a couple management and finance classes my senior year so I could graduate on time uh, with this econ degree. And I thought, well, yeah, I love this econ stuff. This is great. Sort of took the the, the GRE, the graduate uh, record exam, uh, just on a whim. So, thought, well, maybe one day I want to go to grad school. Went out and got a job. The first job lasted three weeks because it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. Got another job. In between those two jobs, I got married. So my father-in-law wasn't real thrilled that I was getting married with, with very few employment prospects at the time. So I got the second job and, and it was going okay, but it, it was there were some crazy things about that job. I was at the job on Christmas Eve working and my boss said, all right, let's go. And we had to go out. Part of the, part of the job involved finding people who hadn't paid us yet and trying to find out why they hadn't paid us. So I was part of a, I was working at a, a at a firm that, that made loans. Uh, I will proudly tell my students now, these were the highest interest rate loans allowable by Pennsylvania state law. So these were, you know, high risk people. And so they tended to not always repay their amounts in full. So on Christmas Eve, we were out chasing people trying to find, because we figured it's Christmas Eve, they're going to be home. And we found a couple people and, at the end of that day, I thought, I cannot, I can't do this much longer. So came back after Christmas, uh, was doing some more chasing after Christmas. And on the radio, wouldn't you know it, it's Walter Williams. So he's doing this radio program while I'm driving around looking for people. And I thought, I remember this Walter Williams guy. And he's the, the school I'd never heard of, George Mason. I think I'm going to apply at grad school. I'm going to apply at George Mason. And I applied at one other place. And George Mason in pretty quick time, it seems to me, got back to me and said, yes, we'd love to have you come on down. Yes. And boy, was I, was I lucky. I mean, the people I met at Mason were, were spectacular. My dissertation advisor was one of these guys who was, um, he had published plenty in his, in his career and, and he just wanted to make sure you got your dissertation done and you got out of school. And, um, who was your dissertation supervisor? Mark Crane. So he was, I mean, just a, a wonderful guy to work with, and just really encouraging and enthusiastic about, you know, every time he came into his office, he was like, oh, yeah, how's it, you know, how are things going? Let's try this. He'd give you, I mean, just almost seemed like off the top of his head, he'd throw some new idea at you. And you're like, man, I wish I, I wish I could be this smart. And he's just a, a wonderful uh, mentor in graduate school. And the, and the, you know, the graduate students I was there with were just, were wonderful people. Unfortunately, I'm not in contact with all of them, but I'm in contact with enough of them still. And you know, the, just a, a wonderful group of people to, to, uh, to go through that sometimes very traumatic experience of graduate school with. So yeah, my story is sort of atypical in that I didn't think about being an economist until it was almost too late. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really fortunate that the right people were put in, in my path to kind of push me in that direction. And, and it's been a great career and I've loved every minute of it. Can I ask you a number of quick fire questions, Brian, before we wrap up? Yeah, sure. I'd love to know if you have a recommended book for our listeners. Oh, a recommended book. Uh, it's sort of, you mean like a, a book that you've got to read, pick it up as soon as you can kind of book? Not really. It could be a resource either. Okay. Um, so for me, one of the areas that I'm really interested in, and, and I haven't, I need to explore it more, and I, I need to really sit down and, and think about some ideas, is the economics of information security. Um, I teach a class on that. And I always find that the students are really interested in, I mean, typically the folks who sign up for the class are really interested in it anyway. 
Um, but I learned so much from that. And one of the books that I've read kind of in trying to trying to get more familiar with with the environment of information security is a book called We Are Anonymous by Parmi Olson. Um, it's about the group Anonymous. You maybe remember them a few years ago. They seem to be hacking everybody in every which way. Um, but this is sort of a, an expose on the members of Anonymous. It, it's really it is so in depth and it is so interesting and really explores the motivations and the you know, kind of who these people were and you know, how they got together and why they did what they did. I and mean, that's just an excellent, excellent book. If you could step into the DeLorean and time travel, what era would you go back to? Who would you like to talk to and what conversation would you think you'd have with them? Ooh, uh, I think you know, when I was studying history, my favorite era of history was was the American Revolution. So I think I, I would really like to go back there and kind of be a, to steal a line from the the move or the musical Hamilton to kind of be in the room where it happened. Just kind of hear what people were talking about, kind of get a sense of what they were, what their fears were and, and what they thought they were just to hear what they thought they were going to accomplish and, and kind of what they expected out of all this. And as far as who I would want to talk to, sort of my understanding and sort of my appreciation of the people who founded the country has changed a lot over time. I, I think James Madison is really interesting, but he's not doesn't seem to be much of a conversationalist. I think Thomas Jefferson is a great conversationalist, but I don't know if I can believe anything he tells me. I think George Washington would, I don't know, he'd sort of hedge a little bit, but I think the one guy who would really tell you anything you wanted to know and and really wouldn't pull any punches would be actually John Adams. Yes, yeah. He he just I say he has a lot of stories. Oh my gosh, absolutely. You can just sort of tell from the history that they weren't they weren't particularly good politicians, but they were they were there when things were going on and they kept such meticulous records that you can I, I just feel like you could trust those guys more about, you know, asking them questions. Um, I think Adams in particular, he's such a, he had so, so much integrity. He, he defended British troops in court because he just felt like they deserved the, uh, the benefit of the doubt, just like anybody in a courtroom. And, and it really, you know, it hurt his reputation to do that. But you know, his principles were that, you know, Hey, we're, we're establishing this new country and we want it to be based on a rule of law. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of put my professional reputation where my mouth is on that one. And I'm going to defend these guys. And, you know, he didn't win the case, but I think after kind of the tempers calmed down, I think he gained a lot of respect from people. So that's someone I would like to talk with and, and talk specifically about what his views of the future of America were um, just to, to try to get a better understanding of, what are you looking into the future to see? Uh, what, what do you think is going to happen in this country? How, what are the ties like? Gonna, what are the ties with Britain going to be like France and those kinds of things? But but more sort of how do you see this country evolving? And, and upon what do you think it needs to be based if it's going to succeed? I, I think he'd just be a fascinating, fascinating person to talk with. Do you know what I would love to actually hear the discussion that was going on at the time? And perhaps, I don't know if this is true, but the decision to have English rather than German oh, yeah. to be the native language of America. Yeah, that that would be really interesting. And and you wonder just how things would have been different in world history had, had America gone with German instead of English. And, and World War II. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that 
you know, World War One and World War Two, and and who knows what else? That whew, that would be crazy. That's a sounds like a science fiction novel waiting to be written. It does doesn't it? Go back in time and influence the decision to have German and then see the butterfly effect or something like that through it. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. That would be good. There's one for you, no brain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One more question, Brian, and, sure. I, and you're you're perfect to, uh, um, to ask this. I would love if you could give us maybe one to three writing tips to help oh. us get things done, whether it's academic papers, whether it's a book, a textbook, whatever it might be. Um, all right. Well, I think the first thing, and this is uh, this isn't any kind of wonderful creative insight or anything like that, but I think you need to you need to write on what you on things that you're interested in. One of the things I know in grad school is I would write on things I was interested in and I would write on them and write on them and write on them. And then I wouldn't be interested in them anymore. And it made the job of writing so much more difficult once you kind of lose that interest. And for me, like right now, writing on dystopian literature and writing about superheroes and hopefully writing some more on information security. Those are things that I'm really, really interested in. And that makes the job of writing so much easier. A second thing would be. And this is a tip. I, I wish this guy was still alive. Um, when I was at Mason, uh, James Buchanan was still there. And and he made this comment that stuck with me more so than anything I ever learned in any of the classes that, that, um, that I had there. Well, yeah, I think that's fairly safe to say is when he was when he would write, he said he would write the paper first and then do the lit review later because he didn't want anybody else's opinions to affect what he was what he was writing. He wanted all of the ideas that he put down on paper to, to be his own. And if other people had written about it, he could, you know, he could weave what they said into what he said, but he didn't want to work it the other way around. He didn't want to have his ideas be the, the offspring of somebody else's work. And for years I'd written by doing, I'd started off, I had an idea and then I'd do the lit review to see what was out there. But more recently I've started to write like Professor Buchanan. Well, I'm not as well or as in depth or any of that kind of stuff, but sort of in the, in the same, following the same process. Um, so doing the writing and getting my ideas down on paper first, because sometimes when I write, I think, oh, this is a really good idea. But if I look in the literature first and, and I don't see anybody's written on this or they've sort of dismissed my ideas, then I think, well, maybe, maybe what I'm thinking isn't really, isn't good enough. It's not. You procrastinate, isn't it? Well, yeah, that, that leads you to procrastinate. And, and um, and then I sometimes I just give up on projects that that probably shouldn't be given up on. But if I write my stuff down first, it's almost like I'm I'm developing a a vested interest in the success of that work because I've written it down first, and then I can defend what I think rather than and then have it be almost a de facto defense of what somebody else thinks. So the more I think about uh, what Professor Buchanan said about writing, the more I appreciate him making that note about, about how he did some of his research. Um, so I think those are, those are two of the, the main things, write about what you like and don't worry about what other people have said on the topic before you start writing yourself. And I guess finally um, is just to kind of make sure you carve out time to write. One of my children, she just likes to write and she, anytime she has a free moment, she's writing and you know, she's just writing stories. She, fan fiction stories of this or that. And, but she's getting really good at writing because she does it so much. And so if you carve out time to, to get your writing done, it doesn't become the last thing on your to-do list. And when it becomes the last thing on your to-do list, it tends to not, at least on my to-do lists, it tends to 
keep getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and then it doesn't get done at all. So make sure you have some time set aside to write, and you'll get some writing done. It's 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 sort of basic writing, and and it's, it's kind of going back to one of your questions about um, who would you go back and talk to. If you look back at people who like John Adams, and you look at people uh, like Alexander Hamilton or uh, Richard Waitley, our former Archbishop of Dublin back in the 1800s, and he he studied so many different things. He studied botany and economics and and the, the impact of the poor laws and all these really, really cool things. But what those guys all have in common is that usually they would wake up and they would write. That was like the first thing they would do in the morning. And for some of them, it's the last thing they would do at night, but they would always make sure they spent time writing. They're fantastic tips, Brian. And again, when I was talking to you in Tampa, Florida, back in October, you told me you wrote that economics or the e- super economics man paper in one and a half days. Oh yeah, that was. An- and I th- I think it's based on your second tip, where you just write the paper first and then do the literature review after. Yeah, yeah, and and that and it was something I was so interested in writing about. I mean, just yeah, you know, I, I kind of I sat down, I had a, a few ideas kind of sketched out. Um, just on some scrap paper, but just to sit down and write the paper was so, so easy. And, um, yeah, again, like you said, it, it's part, partly because, well, partly because I was interested in it and, and partly because it's just fun and, and, and you find those kind of ideas. And, and I'm, I'm sure other folks have similar stories where they find it an idea where this is what I want to write about. I'm just going to write it and we'll deal with any of the consequences later. And you just get it done. And then you, you know, spend a little bit of time editing it. But, you know, don't, don't procrastinate, which is easier said than done. Brian, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they could find you. Well, that is a good question. Um, I am on Facebook and just, um, it's, uh, there's not too many Brian O'Rourke's on Facebook. In fact, uh, that's a pretty easy place to find me. And you can uh, find me if you go to the Robert Morris University website. It's uh, pretty easy to track me down there. Cool. And I'll put all the links on the website too. And you can find all the links to Brian on economicrockstar.com forward slash Brian O'Rourke. That's O-R-O-A-R-K. Brian, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rockstar. Hey, thanks a lot, Frank. It's great talking with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.